0: Welcome, everyone, to another brand new episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast, and in this episode, we are talking to two very special guests, and I actually heard about them and the program that they run through another podcast. Thought it was fascinating, read more about it, invited them on the show, and they were happy to come on, and this is uh, one of those topics and one of those initiatives that they put forth that not only talks about preventive medicine, but actually puts it into place in a very, very large scale. Um, these two are doing absolutely incredible work within their community of Boston, and these guests are Dr. Elena Mendez Escobar, who holds a PhD in theoretical physics from the Uni- University of Edinburgh. She also has an MBA from MIT, where she stuck around as an instructor. She's actually formerly an associate partner at McKinsey, helping states, health plans and other organizations serving Medicaid populations. While she was there, she also co-founded their Center for Societal Benefit through healthcare. Currently she's the executive director of strategy and health of the Health Equity Accelerator, which is the program we're talking about today. Her partner in crime is Dr. Thea James, who is currently in emergency emergency medicine physician who completed medical school at Georgetown University before doing her residency at the Boston City Hospital. Um, Dr. James has served in a lot of different roles and has a lot of accolades, so I'll probably be selling a pretty short in this introduction, but for the sake of time, she has deployed to numerous disaster reliefs across the globe, um, specifically in the United States, such as uh, New York after 9-11 and Hurricane Katrina in New Orleans. She's worked with partners in Haiti and Africa to implement sustainable healthcare models and as well as providing ultrasound training. She served on the uh, health inequities task force under the mayor of Boston. And right now she is the executive director of the health equity accelerator and vice president of mission and associate chief medical officer. That's a lot to say, but I'm very excited to have these two on the podcast. So let's get straight into it. Overcoming saber toothed tigers and woolly mammoths. We must now face a new enemy ourselves. With the rates of diseases such as heart disease, stroke, diabetes, depression, and many others ballooning, you must find a better solution to these modern epidemics. Welcome to the Preventive Medicine Podcast. We believe in building a foundation of health by means of prevention so that you can build the life you want and find fulfillment with no barriers. Hear from experts around the country on how to take your health into your hands take control and build a foundation of health for the life that you want to live. And now, here's your host, Raghav Sharma. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Preventive Medicine Podcast. And in this episode, I am talking to doctors Elena Mendez Escobar and Dr. Thea James. And you guys heard a little bit about them in the introduction. So I'm going to get straight into this episode. First question for both of you, you can answer this first whoever wants to answer this first, is what are your roles within the Boston Medical College and uh, what do you do on a day-to-day basis?
1: Um, Yeah, so we are both co-executive directors of the Health Equity Accelerator at Boston Medical Center. And we both wear many different hats. Uh, C.I. is also a doctor in our emergency uh, room department. So uh, there's a lot more to it than that, but the work that we're doing together Around health equity is really being a coordinated point of uh, a lot of work that we're doing throughout our whole system to transform the way we are um, providing care uh, to make it more equitable. And for us, there there's a lot of different ways BMC has done that this over the years. We are a safety net hospital, so for more than 150 years, we've been working on health equity. And you know, we can get into more details on, on that. Uh, but most recently, our health equity accelerator, what we're focusing on is inequities from the point of view of race. Um, because what we found is that despite what we thought we had been working for decades on this, when we looked at our data, just like everyone else, our Black patients, our Latino patients, they have much worse health out- outcomes than our you know, non-Latino white patients. Um, so we wanted to do something to really look at what is that Black experience, that Latino experience, and understand how we need to change care so it's going to work for those patients. Yeah, do you want to add anything yeah. to that?
2: Yeah, I mean, I I think you I think you basically said it all, uh, Elena. And also, you know, in this, you know, on this in this work, sort of understanding um, what are the root causes of why people don't, you know, why why things don't work as planned, and um, and not being afraid to um, uncover and do whatever we have to do to find that out um, and, um, and having a more um, natural way or a faster way to actually, in a greater intentionality to actually change what we see so far. And I'm talking about the data that's so highly predictable. If you look at it from a demographic perspective, you already know if even if you don't know about the topic, you know, who's going to do worse. And so we have great intentionality towards that. It's not about what historically has done is identifying disparities and then identifying disparities and identifying disparities and doing nothing beyond that.
0: Yeah, uh, both of you mentioned these statistics and kind of the disparaging um, and the very disparate results that we see in different races, specifically Hispanic and Black populations. I'm going to invite the guests or sorry, the, uh, the listeners right now, if you're listening to this when you're driving, then whenever you get done, go to the show notes and there'll be a link in there um the health equity accelerator has a great page where they highlight a lot of these different stats and it's specific to boston and it's boston medical center not college sorry i'm gonna correct that from before um but they have a great page where it just has all of these different stats and just reading through those is very eye-opening and you can see why there's so much work that needs to be done and why it's not just acknowledging these and it's not what you quote on your uh, website not another initiative but a transformation i really like that sentence um, but I invite everyone back home to go look at that. And that kind of serves as the context behind this entire episode. And, uh, Fiat, you mentioned looking at kind of what causes all of this. And that is really what brings on preventive medicine. Cause we're looking at upstream, what is causing all of this stuff. So, um, As kind of an entry question to preventive medicine, I always like to ask, what does preventive medicine mean to each of you?
2: I, you know, I'll I'll start with this one. I mean, I've been an ER doctor for many years, for a very, very long time. And, you know, when you're a doctor, particularly in a fast-moving specialty like emergency medicine, when you see the same things over and over again, if you have no insight into that or no context for that... um, you begin to form um, preconceived notions in your mind. You, know, you sort of uh, you know, come up with reasons why this is happening. And sometimes, and not sometimes, many times, actually, that can, be, that can prevent you from getting the outcome that you're intending to get as a, as a physician. And so you see a bunch of people who look a certain way who always have a certain problem. You know, they come in over and over again. You fix them, you reset them to baseline stability. And then in two or three or four months, they'll be right back with the same thing for years. But no one ever really questions that. You know, nobody ever wonders why this is happening. And even worse, since they don't teach us this in medical school, no one would ask the question. Like, what would it take for this not to happen again? Mm-hmm. It's not what they teach you. And so these sort of um, assumptions just perpetuate over time. And we pass them on from student to resident to fellow to attending. And it just keeps recycling because no one does anything different. And so to me, preventive medicine begins with education. And it begins with teaching people that patients know what's best for them better than we do. And um, that every time we're making an assumption, we're rolling the dice. And I think we should be taught to just ask the question, what would it take for this to not happen again? And that's something I learned early on. I mean, I did have a little bit of more insight maybe than most because, you know, I'm an African-American and I come from an African-American community. And so um, I I didn't have any question to ask because I felt like I myself was rolling the dice if I didn't know. And I I I can't begin to start discharge instructions that have been printed out and designed for a disease, not necessarily with the individual with that disease, I can't assume that that's gonna work for that person. I don't know if they have the resources. I don't know what matters most to them. And so, um, uh, so for me, preventive medicine means, first of all, engagement with the human being you're sitting in front of to find out what it would take for this not to happen for them again. And so you can recognize what the barriers are um, in front of you to prevent you from achieving, you know, the outcome you're trying to have. I think it starts right there. And and, and the only assumption that I will make is that there are lots of structural reasons why people are, are, are not, you know, achieving uh, health in the way that they should. Any, everything from financial, you know, that also leads to housing, food and all these other things that people often have um, gaps in. Yeah, I mean, I think that one
1: of the things that we see is that there is preventative medicine very, very upstream. And that is probably all of our responsibility as a society to invest in those things. Uh, But there is also something that we're seeing that is very interesting. Um, You know, when there is the first a sign of something that may be going wrong, Uh, what do you do and how does the health system react and how quickly does it react? Um, We're actually seeing that a lot of the health inequities, especially among people of different races, come from from that, from delays in diagnosis or delays in Mm -hmm. initiating treatment. Um, One example recently, I was really shocked to hear that there is some national research, this is not BMC data, around pre-diabetes, for example. Um, and most doctors will do nothing uh, with a patient that has prediabetes. When asked in a survey, I think it was less than 10% of the doctors would take some course of action, whether it's, um, you know, a visit to a specialist or some kind of uh, tools. Uh, it's less than 10%. And then they did some research actually looking at charts and patients with um, A1C values in the prediabetes range. And it was single digits when there was a next step after that. Um, and it is more likely that this happens when the patients are of a minoritized racial group. So it that is also a point of preventive medicines, right? Like when there is an early sign of something that needs to be addressed in some way, um, how quickly are we uh, mobilizing to support that, that patient and giving them a chance to make their own choices about their health, asking, as the I was saying, you know, what do they need um, so that this prediabetes doesn't progress into diabetes as an example. Um, so I think thinking about that and how that may look different for different people, it's, it's a, an important thing that we're trying to do here every day.
0: I like how both of you touch on kind of slightly different aspects of prevention. This is why I like talking about it so much, because C was talking about, you look way upstream, what's causing these things as primary prevention. Eleanor, you're talking about like that secondary, when someone has low levels of disease, how do we intervene to progress it from getting worse? And those are two phenomenal concepts that I like to touch on a lot. Um, at this point, we've set the stage kind of for what preventive medicine means, a little bit about BMC and a little bit about Health Equity Accelerator. We've talked about it. Um, if someone back home has kind of clicked on that link and read through them, they know about it. But it's time to get to the topic. How did the accelerator come about? I know it came about after COVID, kind of highlighting some disparities in the communities um, and seeing how quickly people were able to take action. So I know that's an inspiration, but... How did this get pieced together? Why now versus, because these disparities have been going on for so long, why now and kind of on a day-to-day basis? What does it do?
1: You know, that's an excellent question. Why now? It really should have been done sooner. (laughs) There's no magic, anything, there's nothing magical about now. It really, we should all have mobilized, but um, at least we are doing it now. And I do think there is some momentum behind uh, addressing racial inequities with a lot more purpose um, than before. So for whatever reason, there is more energy, more resources, and we'll take them because um, we want to mobilize. We want to start doing things now. And you know we don't have all the answers. We don't know exactly what's going to work. But we know enough to know that we need to do a few things differently. And if I had to synthesize, like, what does the accelerator do differently, it's really about breaking silos. So our teams are very multidisciplinary. And we are lucky enough that we are accepting a hospital, but also an academic medical center. So our teams have operators, have clinicians of different types, nurses, doctors, midwives, endocrinologists, um, but also have uh, researchers. Uh, so we are trying to avoid this situation where, you know, someone is doing some research and maybe 10 or 20 years down the line will get Operationalized or not, <laughs> um, but doing it together, whatever we know is the latest. Let's try to implement it. Let's evaluate it at the same time, and let's do this very rapidly. So, that's really the key of what we're trying to do here: putting together those very multidisciplinary teams with the voice of the patients also at the core, um. In our first year of the accelerator, we've been engaged with more than fifteen thousand patients on our equity projects because we're constantly doing surveys, interviews, focus groups to decide, you know, where to focus to find out within, um, you know, a clinical area, whether it's pregnancy or diabetes, what matters to patients. Um, for example, in pregnancy, we um, looking at inequities of white, black uh, pregnant people were having more worse outcomes we were able to link it back a big part of it to preeclampsia and black people not only having slightly higher rates of preeclampsia but also when they do have it much higher rates of complications and you know hemorrhaging and so forth Um, so we talked to patients first patients who had preeclampsia and you know get got their input and one of the things they said was I knew nothing about preeclampsia before my diagnosis. And I really relate to that because I had preeclampsia as a patient and I had never heard that word. Um, So we're working, we've been working with patients to create educational videos where they've literally been reviewing scripts with us and making sure we're answering questions that, you know, they would have had when they were diagnosed um, and putting together a whole plan to build more agency in the patients when they find themselves in that situation to be able to make decisions about their care more rapidly. Um, so th- that's just one example where, you know, we've been working with them on their input on what should we do about it, but also in designing the in- interventions focus groups and reviewing everything that we're doing together with our patients.
0: Absolutely. that There's a whole lot going on there. And if you scroll through the website, i it was, took quite a while for me to get through the website because there's so many other little links, so many PDFs to read through. So there's a lot going on in the Accelerator. Um, so it's definitely hard to describe what it does on a day-to-day basis. One question I want to ask you as a follow-up to that is that um, you mentioned that BMC is an academic center. It's a large hospital that takes care of the patients. And reading back, it's kind of one of the first municipal hospitals out there that dedicated itself to reaching those kind of hard-to-reach quote-unquote patients um, that otherwise might not be reached. Um, and you all are, at BMC are doing a phenomenal job as far as I can see, read, and that's what you're talking about. But there's a bunch of other hospitals around the country. BMC is just one hospital in one state, in one city specifically, and there's so many others out there. Do you believe that hospitals have an obligation for their communities to reach these hard to reach patients?
2: I, um, I I think they have an obligation to do that. I mean I kinda I guess it depends upon, you know, what their intentionality is. And I would say that intentionality is key. Uh, These days, if you want to transform in any way um, and not just accept the status quo and believe that that's it, because, um, you know, when I think about it, um, for our patients and the communities they come from, like we are an anchor in the community. And when you are an anchor in the community, the way that we are surrounded by our catchment area of, of communities and neighborhoods we have an opportunity to actually transform and change the data that we're seeing. You know, we don't just say we're a safety net hospital. So our goal of our operation, uh, our operational model is charity exclusively in perpetuity because it will not change anyone's life course trajectory. We're basically like filling gaps and not eliminating these gaps. And so uh, our intentionality is to eliminate them. And when I talk about us being, um, and and watch the data change, when I talk about us being an anchor, it means that we also have an opportunity to address the the very things that are embedded in structural barriers that prevent us from um, eliminating the barriers that people have or eliminating the gaps that people have. So we have an opportunity to um, participate in and how we make everyday decisions in things like hiring, investment, and how we procure. And so, you know, we have intentional pipelines and and, and um, uh, programs like we have a, a JP Morgan Chase grant, for example, that focuses on neighborhood revitalization and also on um, economic mobility, generational wealth building. And we have a pipeline, uh, we have a, a pipeline with some partners to send, identify patients who are in our catchment area, like seven different zip codes, and send them in for jobs inside of uh, BMC. And not just jobs to like fill a hole, but jobs with on top of that intentionality for um, professional development for people to rapidly rise through the ranks into sort of managerial positions and things like that once they get in. It's not just getting just it's not like you know, it's not like your financial plan, like set it and forget it kind of a thing. It's not like mm-hmm. that. It's actually putting some intentionality around it. We also have used our determination of need funds, which is actually it's an obligation. So when a hospital builds onto its facility, you build a new ward or whatever, you the state says you have to give five percent of the total construction cost to the community. And when we did campus redesign in 2017, we actually had six and a half million dollars to um, spend. And we asked the state if we could use that money for various different housing um, projects and you know community investment projects. They approved it. And that enabled us to invest in a housing development that used to be an old um, bus depot uh, that, that will be t- 323 units of new mixed income housing. So there's some to rent, but also some to own so people can build generational wealth. On the first floor of that uh, development, there's a space for a grocery store. People wanted a grocery store there. And we wanted to, again, you know, giving things an opportunity, doing things in a way that enables people to participate for it to be inclusive and not use the, the, the particular financial models that are a lot more extractive. And people have to, you know, borrow money at high interest rates with rapid turnaround times and things. So we did what we call patient capital, gave them a no interest loan. And we made that loan to the company that owned the store, the business was based in DC, Washington, DC, but then COVID happened and they couldn't travel here. So they said, well, I will, we'll identify two local operators for you who were two black men, actually, who are have lots of experience in the in the food industry. Um, one of them was actually featured in Bon Appetit this summer, and um, immediately we ask ourselves, why should they just be operators? Why can't they own that business and own that physical space? And it took us several months to convince others in that capital investment stack to change the structure of the loan, and they now own the business. It's now called Nubian Markets, and they have the option to purchase the physical space in in three years. And so. And then uh, the third thing is, in terms of procurement, <clears throat> we have something called an internal healthcare anchor network that focuses on those three things. Um, and we're part of uh, a national collaboration of 75 hospitals that, who focus on these same things, big systems like Kaiser and Common Spirit and Trinity and those folks. And uh, we actually have intentionality to identify women and minorities as vendors who we procure from. And we keep uh, data on that. Every single month, we take a take a look at the data to make sure. I mean, in the first year, we went from something like two or three million dollars in in um, in uh, in those types of vendors to 28 million in just the first year. So we've we've continued to do that, and we think there are even more opportunities to do that. So um, <clears throat> when you talk when you ask the question about what is our obligation to communities, um, hard to reach patients? Well, again, we're focusing on root cause. And that's why, you know, we invest in those uh, those three things. And they're easy to remember, you know, hiring, investment, and procurement.
0: Yeah, um, I think as a little bit, maybe a tough follow-up question, you mentioned that for the procurement part, there's a network of 70 to 75-ish hospitals that are kind of all working together in large systems. Um, for the first two... Uh, You didn't mention that. There might be. I'm I'm not sure of that. But it sounds like this is something that's very specific to Boston. Um, And then that city, because you've set up all these systems of just like kind of finding things, seeing exactly where you need to kind of put investment time, see what people to hire, where to like put resources. Is this... Of a method that can be replicated in other hospitals, have you heard of anyone kind of looking at this program, the Health Equity Accelerator? Let's say, for example, in Chicago, where my hometown is, have any hospitals just like can they bottle up the system, this method, and kind of implement it on their own, or is it just so unique to Boston that it's something that's going to be difficult for others to model?
2: Are you talking about what the, the hiring investment procurement thing I just talked about?
0: So, in general, like the Health Equity Accelerator, kind of everything that you're talking about that's encompassing that.
2: Elena, you want to answer that?
1: Yeah, well, I think you know there are pieces that um, people have been doing already. And I think there are certainly other anchor networks, other models, uh, from some of the examples that Thea was talking about, procurement uh, jobs. Um, I I do think there's a unique piece in Massachusetts that allows us to fund some of those, which is a determination of need process that I was talking about. Some other states have these where somehow hospitals are asked to put aside a percent of money in Massachusetts as related to capital projects um, that then is invested in the community. Uh, Not every state has that, but many are starting to have things like that. And it's really important because... Within the current reimbursement models in healthcare, it is very difficult to invest in things that are long-term. Uh, mm-hmm. All of our contracts with, with payers, with the state, usually you they want to see results within a couple of years. A, a member is not a member with a health plan for more than two, three years. So uh, for to have these types of mechanisms where states are putting money aside and saying, you know, this is to be used for, long-term projects in the community and not necessarily linked to specific near-term health outcomes. That is a really important enabler to do more of these things.
0: Sure. So as a follow-up question to that as well, um, you mentioned that all these kind of, some of the payers involved, some of where the funding comes from, they are very data-driven as far as they want to see change. They want to see where is my investment going? What kind of, uh, what's the delta on this essentially? So how can you actually put that together where the stats change? Because we've seen this, these disparities for so many years. We have very deep roots to all these health inequities. They've worsened to some extent, and now maybe they're getting a little bit better in some areas, depending on how you look at the data. But what is that kind of time frame for how long it ch- takes for those stats to actually change? Have you kind of quantified that?
1: Yeah, and some are really long-term. I mean, if we take back the example of diabetes, uh, to develop pre-diabetes or even for that to progress to diabetes, we're talking about years and years. So for for us to see reductions in how many people progress from diabetes, pre-diabetes to diabetes, it's going to take years to see that. So you need to look for intermediary uh, you know, signs that you're moving in the right direction, but really be willing to be in it for the long term and be investing in the long term because um, some of these things have taken decades to build up and we're not going to be able to solve them, in, you know, a uh, one to year of cycle. Um, the other thing that for us is really important is we try to first figure out what we need to do and then uh, build a mid- business case around it. And that may include advocacy for change how things are reimbursed, because what we do know for sure is however we were doing things up until now was not working. The data everywhere shows there are huge inequities. And the current reimbursement model are, are built for the past. They're not built for future mm-hmm. innovations. Um, so we cannot just be looking for the thing that is going to maximize um, our profits, whoever we use, whether you're a payer or a provider. You have to figure out best what needs to be done and then change the financial models to sustain that. And sometimes that means you know, advocating for expansion of c- certain benefits. Um, we've been a part of advocating for expansion of Dula reimbursements, for example. Massachusetts is going to be one of the first states that reimburses doulas in Medicaid. Um, mm. Sometimes it has to do with the reimbursement models. We're advocating for more telehealth to be able to do more remote monitoring for patients that don't have the time or the resources to be coming to the hospital very frequently to have a chronic condition you know, checked upon. Um, so we think it's very important to start first with, What do we think is going to work, and then actually change the payment system to support
2: that? I I just definitely
0: and well, go ahead.
2: I'm sorry. I just want to add to that. Is that what I would say? And Elena, I love the way that you just expressed this. Is because you know I'm always thinking. You know what kind of business model invests billions of dollars in charity exclusively with no return on the investment. You know, it doesn't seem like a, a very good business model. I just have never understood that. But mm-hmm. what Elena just explained, you know, this is a model where you focus on disparities and inequities and you get a return on the investment. And all the early signs of what we've been doing in this space shows that you can get a return on the investment.
0: We want to take a quick break to remind you that this podcast is not intended for medical advice and is for educational and informational purposes only. We also want to remind you of our Instagram page at PreventPod, where we share various content related to each episode that you can share with your friends if you enjoy our episode. And lastly, don't forget to sign up for our mailing list so you know right away when an episode goes up at www.thepreventedmedicinepodcast.com. And with that, let's get back into this episode. That's honestly a very critical answer because as uh, we've learned in our society, it's very capitalistic driven. So if you are able to prove that there's going to be a return on it, you're definitely going to get more investment and more uh, kind of um, support behind that initiative. So I absolutely loved how you explained that as well. Um, One last question as far as this kind of line of questioning is that hospitals around the country, I've read a fair amount into these kinds of things and initiatives around the country. I think your think the BMC initiative, or sorry, transformation is absolutely incredible, which is the one to interview to. Um, but hospitals have been kind of on the pessimistic side, hospitals have been doing a lot of these different kinds of things for many years. I know uh, another podcast that I had was kind of looking at things within the communities of Chicago that are underserved, um, specifically on the West side of Chicago. But it seems like these stats never get better and that society continues to change at a very rapid pace. Do you th- You might be on the more optimistic side than me, so forgive me, but do you two think that the initiatives and programs that hospitals can implement can keep up with the rate that society is changing at?
1: You know, it's interesting because if we think about it from that race perspective, um, I think we're getting to a point of uh, critical mass where, you know, the United States is a majority minority country already. And I do think that will make a difference for uh, how quickly things will change or are starting to change in healthcare also, because people are demanding different types of care, are more vocal, having more agency, um, and really forcing the healthcare system to do things differently. So I do think um, that the fact that society is changing so rapidly, is imposing an extra strain in the healthcare system. I think that 10 years ago, 15 years ago, people talked a lot about consumer-driven healthcare as a huge trend. And I think now we're getting at the point where for that consumer-driven healthcare to work, you're gonna have to focus on how diverse your patients are. you know, I, I always like to compare this to, you know, the the television industry, uh, where before you had five channels or however many you had, and you had to create shows that you know would appeal to a broad, broad population. And now we live in the streaming era where everything, you know, there there are shows for every niche of the population and no one is trying to serve the masses anymore, the way people grow their businesses in in um creative media is by getting it really right for each niche group. So I think that is the transformation that we're going to have to go through in healthcare, going from kind of the the mass media into the streaming niche approach to figure out, you know, what care really, to be able to serve to our uh, customers, our patients, is going to require that level of um, personalization and, you know, um, To each, to to a very, very diverse population that we have today.
0: All right, we've discussed money a little bit, and we discussed like um, as far as business models goes. Of instead of just investing billions into kind of charity for quote, um, that there is a business model that you can get a return on this. And on the very capitalistic side of things, that is kind of how the world works. Um, So as far we touched a little bit upon uh, how like J P Morgan is a little bit into here. Um, As far as investments, um, we talked a little bit about something else. I forgot exactly what uh, I think Fia mentioned, but where does the money come from for things like the Health Equity Accelerator? And is this something that is specific to BMC because of kind of their mission? How do other hospitals get this kind of funding?
1: I I do think that one thing that is helping us that is specific to BMC is that we actually have a lot of risk in our patients. Massachusetts has moved Medicaid to... um, an aco model where uh, most medicaid lives are now in an aco where the entity um has full has some kind of risk on the full total co- cost of care for the patients and that kind of model allows you more flexibility to be able to you know invest more in more preventative medicine i mean massachusetts is certainly um i think more advanced than other states in in how many lives are in that model but i think many others are also moving towards that um that place and you know i I do think that for us it's a top priority to continue redefining the reimbursement system the traditional ways of reimbursing healthcare are just not enough to close these inequities and you know um starting from even the fact that medicaid pays much lower than you know commercial payers and um i think it happens not just at BMC, but also elsewhere, that the hospitals that serve more higher proportion of Black patients, of Latino patients, also are hospitals that have higher proportion Medicaid reimbursements, Mm -hmm. which means on average, we just get paid a lot less for doing the same things that other payers. There are even differences within the commercial payer rates to different hospitals, right, depending on the market powers that different hospitals have. And I do think that those things need to change uh if we really want to change health equity and there is some trend that things are moving in that direction but there's more work to do for sure
2: and so those are structural barriers as well for us as people who take care of that those populations predominantly
0: All right. So we mentioned that things are changing um, and that change requires change on multiple levels, not only on initiatives by Health Equity Accelerator, but on larger scales, because these things have been going on for a long time. These disparities age back many decades, you mentioned, I'd say even like uh, hundreds of years to some extent. Um, So a lot of this comes from the policy level. And I know that uh, Health Equity Accelerator kind of Um, supports policies on various levels as far as kind of um, maternal health justice, economic justice, and environmental health justice as well. I read a little bit about those policies. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the support for those things?
1: Yeah, and I really want Sia to talk about this because she was in the White House just a few weeks Mm -hmm. ago. Uh, But I think that is incredibly important, and I think we often underestimate how important it is for health systems to be part of advocacy and policy discussions. Because, you know, everybody talks about social determinants of health. Um, the majority of your health outcomes are, you know, determined by factors other than healthcare. care. Um, but a lot of times health systems are the ones who see that. And it's other agencies and other industries that need to do something about it. If we don't communicate those needs then you know it's hard for those to happen for example you know we've been really involved in advocating continuing um, child tax credits uh, our program that helps patients um, uh, prepare tax uh, taxes for free reimburses on average enough money for families to buy six months of groceries so th- this is the kind of thing that you need that advocacy cross industries cross Agencies to be able to um, mobilize other initiatives that can have a huge impact in healthcare.
0: Yeah. Theo, do you want to add on to that?
2: Yeah, I was just going to say when. Um, thank you, Elena. Uh, when I was um, at the White House conference on on hunger recently, um, spearheaded by um, Senator McGovern. I was on a panel that talked about barriers, you know, to nutrition and, and food security, and the one thing I wanted to make sure that I that I brought to the panel was for people to to never forget the uh, again. It's the same thing I keep returning to because it is the thing that I know I, I don't think comes to people's minds immediately is the economic piece of it, you know, and how if people were financially secure, they really would not have food insecurity. You know, and so um, it's not so much like housing, where there are lots of things that can get in your way—structural things. Um, I mean, money being one of them, but also some of the the policies around housing, zoning, and you know, all that type of thing. But for for food insecurity, I wanted people to not just immediately go to um, a food uh, replacement, you know, sort of thing, or go immediately to a subsidy of some sort because the thing about subsidies is they're not necessarily designed for people to someday not need them. You know, they're not, you know, embedded with things that put you on a track, you know, so that you can be self self self-sufficient at some point. So, um, that was something that was actually well received, you know, by, by the people, the moderator of the panel and the other people who have to vet your questions (laughs) and answers, you know, before the event. So, um, so that was just one important point that I wanted to, to to raise and we'll continue to raise because I don't think it comes to mind uh, initially for, for, for most of us. One
0: uh, one quick question. Is this the kind of support of the Health Equity Accelerator specifically or is BMC also kind of behind this?
1: You know, the, the lines are very blurry <laughs> <laughs> uh, because for us. At BMC, health equity is really everything we do. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think the idea of the health equity accelerator is putting further intentionality and that health and equity uh, lens, especially from a race perspective across everything that we do. But we have an incredible government affairs team who um, they've been working on health. I feel like almost everything they do is around health equity policies. And they've been doing this for decades. Um, so we support and sometimes bring additional insights from the work that we're doing now, the research we're doing now. Uh, but the lines are very blurry, and for us, uh, at the end of the day, we're trying to mobilize a whole system. We're not trying to be like a separate initiative. Um, so it doesn't we, we don't you know pay too much attention to uh, where the line stops if that makes sense.
0: Definitely. And the reason that I asked that is because as physicians, we obviously want what's best for our patients. I haven't met a single physician who's like, oh yeah, let's not get them more great food because whatever, whatever reason. So as physicians, we all advocate for our patients as much as we can, but we're all physicians within a larger health system. And it sounds like BMC does a phenomenal job of advocating for what its physicians kind of want for the patients and that level. But across the country, to my knowledge, that's not really a trend that occurs very often. So, uh, to my kind of what I would think if more hospital systems were in line with what the physicians would want, there'd be a lot more advocacy going on. Have you kind of seen any movement on this level where more hospital systems are kind of taking this on regard or is it just kind of the hospitals which primarily serve those who are underserved?
1: Um, What I would say is that because of our mission, we, I think are likely to attract people that are very purpose driven and feel very strongly about it. So most people who work at BMC have a very strong sense of civic participation. And if you see something, say something, and people wanna be vocal in advocacy. So I do think that we probably have uh, more energy around that type of initiative uh, than your average hospital. Mm -hmm. The, the, The mission is a very, very strong part of the culture here.
0: And the reason that I also ask that is that, um, I think what BMC is doing is phenomenal. I think if it was in every city, we'd have much better overall health of people, much better awareness of how we can help people. And frankly, for preventive medicine's sake, that's exactly what we need. So on a a large scale, that's where I'd like to see things going, but I just don't. Um, and that leads into another question is how do we replicate the health equity accelerator in other cities? Because what you guys are doing is phenomenal. How do we put what you're doing, put it in Chicago, put it in New York, San Francisco, Los Angeles, all these other
1: cities? So, you know, the good news is that um, I get that question a lot, right? And we, at the beginning, invested a lot in um, understanding diagnosing and doing lots of analytics, lots of patient interviews, lots of community engagement. And not everybody has the time or the resources to do that. But the good news is that what we're finding is often very universal. Um, So we're already learning from our first year of operations at the Accelerator um, different principles that I think can easily translate to any discipline that can really transform health equity. Um, Some we've already talked about this idea that wealth is health, that people, uh, you know, as long as they don't have financial means, they're going to prioritize survival before they're going to prioritize health. So working on economic mobility and all of that, but we also found uh, that time is also health and that you know not everybody has the time to be coming to the health system as often as we would like them to sometimes. And we need to make it easier for them. Uh, so we're working on expanding things like the remote monitoring or easier ways to, you know, more telehealth, easier ways to engage with the system. Um, another lesson that we've learned is um, agency is at the core of everything. So we need to move away from... A very paternalistic model of medicine, where you know the patient just has to trust us, and then we'll do the right thing. Um, we've learned that for patients to trust us, we also have to trust them and give them the information, and you know, uh, trust that they will make the best choice for their health and empower them with more information. Um, we have five lessons learned. So those are the first three. The fourth one is this idea of delays in the timing of the care, delays in diagnosis, delays in initiating uh, medications. That's something that you know any department right now can think about. What is one decision that is happening in my department that is probably is time sensitive and is probably not happening at the same speed for everybody? Um, you work in the rehabilitation space, right? I would hypothesize people, uh, you know, getting referred to that space or starting physical therapy sometimes uh, is very critical the sooner you start it can have oh, very different outcomes right and you know i haven't seen data on this but i would bet big money that if you look at the data of you know how many days people take to start physical therapy after certain you know conditions you will find that black people and latinos start much later and that mm-hmm. leads them to worse outcomes so you could focus just on that timing for certain conditions physical therapy must start within one week two weeks and i guarantee you that's going to reduce uh, health inequities in in where you are um so i think there are definitely not everybody has to re- reinvent the wheel there are things to learn from each other from the people who are learning things we're constantly looking for others to learn from them um i said there were four and the fifth one before i forget is mm-hmm. around this idea of moving from you know mainstream to streaming and finding the niches that you know we have Created a health system that caters to the average, and we miss people that way. Um, One example is you know, we're launching an initiative around uh, cancer, and I talked to other hospitals to understand, you know, how others are doing this. And the first thing everybody says is don't prioritize prostate cancer. Nobody dies from that anymore. And looking into the data, that's very much true for white men, is the cancer with the lowest death rate, but actually it's not true for black men. The Mm -hmm. death rate for Prostate cancer for Black men is very high, and it's among the cancers that have actually the highest death rates for Black people. So if we're catering to the average, we would miss that. But because we have a high percentage of Black patients, we are going to prioritize prostate as as one of our near-term priorities. so there are a lot of lessons learned that I think people can start putting in place that will make a huge difference without necessarily everybody having to do the world the work of, you know, the full diagnosis and reinventing the
2: whole wheel, if that makes sense.
0: Thea, is there anything you want to add to that?
2: No, Lena said it all. <laughs> she Hopefully. said it all, definitely.
0: Um sure. So I think that what you said is reinvent, reinventing the wheel. I think a lot of hospitals try to do that in their own way, and we don't learn from each other in healthcare, um, which is an absolute shame to me. I think that a lot of other industries do learn from each other, especially if you look at tech. They look at what one company is doing, like, oh, let's do that, but let's do a little bit better. But in healthcare, we all try to start from scratch. Um, and I think that it's difficult in healthcare because all of our patient populations are slightly different. The community is slightly different and hospitals have to kind of cater to and take into account the different infrastructure that's there within the communities, the different kind of neighborhoods, how those neighborhoods are built, the different access to things that those neighborhoods have. So it's a little bit difficult, but I do think that we can learn from each other. Um, I want to ask you, I know the uh, Health Equity Accelerator is rather new and you have mentioned a couple of lessons learned. Can you talk about one specific like lesson learned, how you apply that and kind of what the outcome has been from... A to Z, has any of that happened yet?
2: (laughs) But um, what I was going to say is one of the most important things I think we've done, like, um, is the very first thing we did, how we started this entire health equity accelerator was, you remember when when, uh, 2020 was happening and everyone was stepping out with their, you know, equity statements and things like that? We didn't do that, actually. We waited for about 11 months. And the thing we did was the first thing we did was to look inside our own house that's where we started. We started looking inside our own house and we were looking at our policies, procedures, all of our data outcomes um, across the entire enterprise, everywhere, research, education, clinical areas, human resources, HR, everything, and, our, and our, um, our health plan. And we looked for inequities because we couldn't figure out how we would create anything on, on an equity platform without understanding inequities. And so the inequities really were, you know, somewhat surprising, you know, for, for, for some of us, um, but it gave us an idea of how, where we needed to start. And that would be our greatest opportunity to get at the root causes of what we were seeing and to give us something to aim for in terms of like eliminating and changing, the, you know, eliminating the gaps and uh, changing the data that we were seeing. And that's why, um, and that takes a lot of courage. That takes a lot of courage to look inside yourself and be that transparent. I mean, look inside yourself, find it and talk about it, which is what we have been doing on various different platforms. And I will tell you the reception from people and audiences everywhere around um, every panel um, that I've ever been on around the country, people love that. They love it because... Now you're giving yourself an opportunity to actually see some differences and changes. And so the data we've seen in um, 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 uh, equity and pregnancy, for example, some of the, the early data we've seen in diabetes, all those conversations that we're getting back from, uh, uh, from patients and everything, that stuff gave us a place to start. And that's why we're seeing differences in the outcomes. Is it
0: Definitely. That is very brave to look internally rather than putting out a statement. I know a lot of times, especially within like the political environment, if you don't put out statements, sometimes you're like, what are you doing? Are you even thinking about this? So looking internally is probably um one of the bravest things you could have done at that point and i love how you did that and actually made changes based on that data rather than just putting something out there waiting for things to kind of reveal themselves quote unquote as i think a lot of people do um so that's great you mentioned about equity and pregnancy i know we don't have too much time left especially with that little hiccup um ellen do you want to talk about that just a little bit it sounds like you want to jump in
1: yeah that is our most advanced uh, initiative and you know this is we're in it for the long term, as we were saying. Uh, but we have identified preeclampsia as a root of inequities, and we have started doing um that remote monitoring. We're expanding our doula program. We're start we redesign our whole patient education around pregnancy and preeclampsia with patients, and the remote monitoring um, is starting to work. And we have specific examples, like a patient who you know. It often happens um, that a pregnant person will show up at an appointment and have signs of preeclampsia, elevated blood pressure. And when we ask our patients to stay in the hospital and they don't expect it, they can't always do that. They may have childcare that they need to arrange. And, you know, it has happened in the past that the patient has decided to leave. And you know we would call that against medical advice, Mm -hmm. but they really felt like they didn't have any other choice. And within the last month, we've had a couple of cases where we've now been able to give the patients a remote monitoring device to say, okay, just go. Let's keep an eye on that blood pressure. Know that if it's, you know, if it stays up, you're gonna have to come back, make plans to come back. And there was a patient a couple of weeks ago in that exact situation and she was able to go home and as she saw that her blood pressure continued to stay high she knew she would have to come back and then um she was able to arrange for childcare for her other children be able to come back and uh, if you know safely deliver the baby um so that's an example of a situation that you know could have probably ended up very differently before we had the remote monitoring program in place. So we're starting to really see some some signs um, that what we're doing is, is having an impact. Um, and we really hope that it's really the all of the interventions that we're doing together in the department. Um, and I forgot to mention there's also a lot of retraining of ourselves, of our staff. Um, And we hope that is everything together is starting to provide, you know, palpable different care to our pregnant patients.
0: Definitely. I love that uh, tangible example of that. I think that's a phenomenal idea. Um, I think that'll have great results as well as you continue to collect more. And I hope that there's more stuff that comes out like that because that's genius. There's a lot of times in hospital. I know we had a patient recently that had to leave AMA quote unquote, AMA due to certain things at home. But there's nothing we can do about that. And the other thing that, um, especially within my kind of care is that if someone does sign up AMA, there's a lot of things that they don't have access to after that, as far as because insurance won't fund anything because you're signing up against medical advice, but there's no option. And then you leave patients kind of with no good, there's no good outcome that can come from it. Um, Finishing up this episode, I always like to ask uh, and leave off with one kind of practical uh, kind of tip or thing for the listeners and this is taken in the context of someone who does not maybe have as much access to healthcare um, as they should um, and let's say if you are getting a cup of coffee at your local starbucks or wherever you get your coffee and someone comes up to you they're from a lower socioeconomic status um, they ask you how do i get healthy what do you tell them in two minutes
2: i'll let the doctor answer that one <laughs> I think I would ask, um, what does healthy mean to you? What does healthy mean for you? And what would it take for you to to have that? And then I would tell them the next steps because it depends upon what they say to me, what their perspective is on healthy because it's customized for each person. And so I I couldn't, I'd be going against everything we believe and talk about if I didn't ask him what it meant for him. Then I can help him because that's how I treat patients in the ER. I asked them, what would it take for this thing they were presenting with not to happen again? And that's because the discharge instruction is written for a disease, not for that individual with that disease, So that's the way I would answer that question.
0: Absolutely. I love that answer. I think health is very personal. I actually had a a little summer where I asked a bunch of people in a park for a YouTube series of what health means to them. I think that's a great opening question because then you can learn about the individual factors within their life and how you can talk about those. There's no blanket answer. I love that answer. Eleanor, do you have anything to add to that?
1: I fully agree. I think we have to move away from the arrogance of the health system that we always assume we know what's best for for other people and what will make them healthy and rather than you know changing or blaming each individual for their health status changing the whole system to enable everyone to achieve their maximum you know potential in life uh, in health and otherwise
0: Definitely. That's a tall task, but it's one that both of you are tackling head on and I applaud you for it. I hope to join you in the efforts once I become a practicing physician to whatever extent that I can be. Um, Ellen and Thea, thank you so much for your time on coming on this podcast. I hope you both enjoyed it.
1: Thank you so much. Thank Thank you.
0: thank you for listening to this episode of the preventive medicine podcast if you enjoyed this episode and want to help us spread the message of prevention first off rate and review this podcast second off you can find our content on our social media platforms at prevent pod that's p-r-e-v-e-n-t-p-o-d thank you for listening and we'll see you in the next one